Hi, <laughs> I'm Kotz, I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome, we are in a series called From the Inside, which is basically the last section of the book of Acts. If you've been with us for the past five years or so, we've been uh, going through book of Luke and its sequel, the book of Acts. And uh, we today are gonna be addressing this one question. I think this section of Acts is addressing this question, which is, have you ever felt like giving up on God's calling? To which you're thinking like, what is God's calling in my life? And uh, I'm not talking about, maybe I am, talking about your specific calling and whatever God has given you. But I'm also talking, and more so talking about the general calling that we've all received, which is to love others, love God, right? Love others in the way that God has loved us. And a lot of times we come into situations where we're like, you know, I've been doing this for a while. I've been loving on this person who's unlovable and I'm ready to throw in the towel. You know, I, I don't know if I could keep doing this. Or you're like, you know, there's this person that I need to be generous towards and this person's been taking advantage of me. I don't know if I should stop. Maybe I should just give up on this calling. Or if it's a specific calling, you know, I'm called to do this or that or go someplace or do this, be that person to this person. And you're like, I, I don't see any results in, my, in, in this. And because there's no results, I have no motivation to continue. Is it time to throw in the towel? Like, have you ever guys been in that situation where you felt like, yeah, I, I don't know, maybe it's time for me to just quit and maybe I misheard God and maybe this isn't what I'm supposed to be doing? Well, we're gonna be talking about that, okay, all of that today. And we're gonna be looking at Acts chapter 27, verses one through 20. And I'll talk a little bit more about what happens after 20, but I didn't put it in this section because I might have to retread some of those verses next week. In case you were wondering, Acts has 28 chapters, so we're really close to the end. I know, you guys are like, let's get over with it. Yes, okay, well this is kind of like the climax of the story, so it's, it's kind of cool. Like if this was an action movie, and you're like, where's the action? This is where the action comes in. So, um, you know, so far you've been hearing about like all these characters that you never heard of before. Maybe you have heard of them before, and you're having a hard time keeping track of these location names and people's names. There's more people and more locations in today's story, but don't worry, after each section that we read, I will summarize it with a map so you know exactly what's happening, you know, because I love maps, okay? So, let's begin from verse one, chapter 27, okay. When it was decided that we, and by the way, the word we is being used before it wasn't being used. We meaning the writer who wrote, the guy who wrote this, the author, his name is Luke. He's now part of the story. He's actually like, it's like I met up with Paul and now from this point on, I'm gonna use the word we because I'm actually part of this journey. And you'll see why this is important because a lot of the things he writes are like, there's no way this person would have known this if he was, unless he was there. So we, would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to the centurion named Julius who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. So, in case you don't know what's happening, Paul is in prison, he's been in prison for two years and no matter, he, he's put on trial several times but every time, no one could find anything wrong with this guy. The only reason he's in, he's in prison is because there's a lot of people who hate him because he's been letting people into this movement of God. Before it was exclusive and now he's letting people in and the people on the end are like, we're not happy with people who don't look like us and think like us and vote like us to be in the same group as us. So, you know, Paul's trying to break down walls and build bridges and there's people who are like, no, we don't like that and so we wanna have you killed but they can't find anything wrong to have him killed. So, um, he's been, in this weird limbo state where he's like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I've been in prison for two years. You can't find anything wrong with me. Maybe I should go to a higher court, the highest court of the day, which is to stand before Caesar and stand trial there. So that's why he's on his way to Italy as a prisoner. So let's continue. So we, 
Luke included, boarded a ship from Adramitium. Sounds like a metal that you might find in a Marvel movie. Adramitium. What is your armor made of? Adramitium. Um, about to sail for port along the coast of the province of Asia. And we put out to sea and Aristarchus, uh, Aristarchus, I don't know how to say it, a Macedonian from Thessalonica was with us. Again, like, do we need to know these names? No, I'm not gonna test you on it. And they don't really play an important role in this story. But why are there so many useless information in this story? We'll talk about it in a second. Okay, the next day, we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. Okay, that's cool. We're Sidon. We'll talk about that. We'll, I'll show you in a few minutes, okay? So next slide. From there, we put out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. Like, the wind's blowing against us? Like, no, the word that's used here in the original language implies that it was like purposefully blowing against us. Like, usually it doesn't, but this time it was. Like, the wind has a personality or something. We'll get to that too. There's a lot of mysteries here, right? Uh, oh, when we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed in Myra in Lycia. So there's a lot of yeah words here. <laughs> okay. In case I'm losing you or Luke is losing you because, you know, right? There are two things that you need to know about the story that we're reading, okay? The first thing that you need to know is this, that the author assumes, Luke, right? He assumes that the reader of Acts, that's us, is familiar with his previous book, The Gospel of Luke, okay? This is a sequel to the first book, the book of Luke. He assumes that you already read the first book. Okay, now why is that important? Because if you are reading the book of Acts and you got to this point in the story, you probably are like, whoa, Paul's gone through a lot. He's, you know, he's been on trial, he's you know, been in prison, all these things, right? Well, if you read this far into the book of Acts, you'll be like, hey, this story reminds me of something else. This is the story of Jesus. So let's take a look at the story of Jesus. Jesus, if you are familiar with the book of Luke, on the last week of his life, this is what happened. First, he went to Jerusalem knowing that he would be persecuted. People were like, Jesus, don't go to Jerusalem. People are waiting there for you with like ropes and knives and, and whips. And like, just don't go because this is gonna be the end of your life. And Jesus is like, I have to go. I gots to go. I have to go. This is what I'm called to do, okay? And another thing we noticed about the Jesus story is that at that point, he, he's put on trial by the religious rulers. These are the Sanhedrin, these Pharisees and Sadducees and all those factions, leaders of these Jewish, Jewish sects. They're like, Jesus, we're going to put you on trial. We find nothing wrong with you because we can't think of anything that's wrong with you, but you're still guilty, right? And, and when that happens, they're like, but we're not allowed to kill because the Romans took away our right to execute anybody. So we're going to send you to the next trial, which is the trial by the Romans, namely Pontius Pilate. Governor Pilate, can you give, us the, give Jesus the death sentence? He puts him on trial. He can't find anything wrong with Jesus. Huh. And he's like, wait a minute, where are you from, Jesus? Oh, you're from the northern area, the Galilee area? Okay, then you know what? This is not my jurisdiction. I'm gonna send you off to the next trial, the king of the Jews, which was King Herod at the time, right? You deal with it. Jesus is sent to King Herod. King Herod's like, I see nothing wrong with you. I'm gonna send you back to, to Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate gets him back. He's like, I don't know what to do with you. The whole crowd is cheering. You know, like, kill him, kill him. He's like, I can't kill you. I, I, there's nothing wrong that you've done. But you know what I can do? I could hurt you like crazy, like right to the verge of dying, right? So he has him flogged, he's whipped, give him a crown of thrones, a crown, crown of thorns, right? And, you know, he's bleeding, and then he puts him in front of everybody and said, look, 
I can't kill him because he didn't do anything wrong, but look, I tortured him for you. And everyone's like, crucify him, crucify him. It's like, but I can't do that. And then Pontius Pilate takes a bowl of water, washes his hand and says, this is on you guys. This is not my decision. This is your decision. And they have him crucified, right? Now, this story of going to Jerusalem, knowing that you're going to be persecuted despite the warnings of other people around you, that you're put on trial by the religious rulers of that city, um, being on trial that, where they can't find anything wrong with you by the Romans, and then put on trial by the, in front of the king of the Jews and not finding anything wrong. This sounds like a story of Jesus, right? But if you've been following us through the book of Acts, you'll also discover that this is also the story of Paul. Right, like Paul, like on his way to Jerusalem, because he had a lot of money that he collected along the way to give to the people who were poor, people who are going through a famine in Jerusalem. People are like, Paul, don't go there, because I just had this vision from a prophet saying that when you go there, you're gonna be bound, you're gonna be captured, you're gonna throw you in jail, and it's like, I have to go. I got to go, I, like this is my calling, I have to do it, right? And when he gets there, there's like a whole, Religious ruler, like the Sanhedrin, they're like, we're gonna put you on trial, we can't find anything wrong with you, but, and we don't have the right to kill you, but we're gonna, um, we're gonna take you to Governor Felix. He's the Roman governor at the time. Felix is like, I see nothing wrong with you, but everybody wants you dead, so I'm just gonna put you in prison until my term is over, his term is over, and now the new governor, Governor Festus, takes over. He's like, why are you in jail? I see nothing wrong with you. Let me go and get the king of the Jews. At the time, it was King Herod Agrippa. He comes in town, and he's like, I see nothing wrong with you either. Like, this is almost exactly the same story, right? Why is this important for us? Because Luke wants you to know that as you're reading the story of Paul, that Luke wants us to know wants his readers to, know, to assume that Paul's noble death is right around the corner. Jesus, if you follow the story of Jesus, after this, Jesus dies on the cross. If you're reading the story of Acts, at this point you're like, oh, I know what's coming up next. Oh yeah, what, what's that? Paul is about to get on the ship and go on a journey so he could go to Caesar? Oh, this is the same thing you need to know. That the Jewish, in the Jewish culture back then, Large bodies of water were often seen as uh, characters of chaos. Chaos, Chaos, yeah. Like this is a thing where you're like, okay, Israel is off to, like the west side of of Israel is the Mediterranean Sea, okay? And you're like, wait, these people don't like to go on voyages? Like no, these people think that like the sea monster (laughs) is out in the waters. They believe that chaos, the things that you can't tame is in the waters. This is why Genesis 1 starts off with the story of how the spirit of God had to hover over the waters to bring shalom, bring peace into this world. The same reason why when uh, they got to the Red Sea and Moses is carrying all these people behind him and, and God is like, Watch me control the waters. And he splits the sea in half and they walk through dry land, right? <clears throat> These are stories that people told because they wanted to show how powerful that their God, our God is more powerful than the chaos of the ocean, right? When Jesus walks on the water when there's, on a stormy night, that was him showing everybody, look, our God is more powerful than the chaos of the water. But for these reasons, the Jews, they did not like to go out into sea. Now, Paul's an exception. He traveled the sea many times. He's been in a lot of shipwrecks. He almost died a few times. But in general, most Jews back then would say, don't go into the water, that's dangerous, leave it to the professionals. And even the professionals are like, we don't wanna do it, leave it to somebody else, <laughs> leave it to the Gentiles. And if you're wondering like, so <clears throat> is this Luke's way of saying that Paul's about to enter his death? Are you sure you're not reading too much into it? Remember one of the details I shared with you? Here's a map. <clears throat> Takes place over here, right? This is where Paul is right now, Caesarea. And he said that he rides a ship that comes from a place called Idramentium, that's all the way up there, 
right? And he's all the way down here. Why does Paul, I mean, what is, why does Luke give us that bit of information? Does it even matter that we know where the ship came from? Well, guess what? You know what adramentium means? Adramentium means <laughs> the court of death. Like, Paul is about to get on a ship called the Court of Death. <laughs> I mean, from a, a ship from a place called the Court of Death. I mean, he's giving us a lot of nudges and winks telling us this is it, folks. Like, this is Paul going to his death. Just like how Jesus died on the cross after all, these, all this persecution, Paul's about to enter into that. Here's a scholar, N.T. Wright. This is what he says about this, about this section of the passage. We can already feel the shipwreck coming towards us in the threatening tone of these introductory verses, right? It's full of detail, Right, because remember, there's a lot of details, like all these names and all these places. Like, why does Paul uh, Luke put all these this weird information in there? Well, because all full of details about ports and cargoes and destinations and winds, much like Luke's detail about all the people Jesus passes on the way to the cross. This is Luke's literary style. When you realize something bad's about to happen, Luke gets into heavy detail. By the way, Luke is the one gospel writer, one of the guys who wrote the biography of Jesus who gives us details about Jesus' body and how it was bleeding and how much fluid he lost in the middle of his crucifixion. The other writers are like, yeah, Jesus hung on the cross, there was a thorn, there was dripping blood, but like he would go into detail because Luke loves details, especially when things are about to get bad. <laughs> okay, so let's, let's recap what's been happening so far. Let's go to the map. So from Caesarea, it says he went to Sidon. Sidon's just a few miles north. It's about 70 miles north. And um, it says here, they got off and his, this, this uh, Roman soldier, his name is Julius, allowed him to get off the boat and visit his friends here because he planted a church here. And he was able to allow these people to take care of him, give him whatever he needed, right? But this is also a call back to when Jesus was carrying the cross and along the way, on carrying the cross, there was a young person who came up to him and helped him out. This is Luke saying, look, there's parallels everywhere. You know, things are happening, right? And then he gives us like weird information, like there was a guy named Aristarchus that, that was from Macedonia, that was also from Thessalonica, right? And there was a guy named Julius who's also, yeah, he gives us all this information, right? But anyways, let's continue our, our, our journey. So from Sidon, he travels up over that island, over to Myra. And it tells us that the reason why he had to go north is because he said that there was winds that were against us. It's almost like this wind has like a personality, like it's pushing against where Paul wants to go. And you're like, are you sure that's what the text is saying? You're gonna see it more and more often. You're not gonna be able to deny it after a while. Let's read on. There, so we're at Myra now, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. Now this ship right here is a cargo ship. It's a ship that is used for, you know, Alexandria is exactly to the south of Myra in Africa, and they would get most of their grain from there and they ship it over to Italy. That's how the cities in Italy blossomed because that's how they got the food there. And they're like, hey, there's a ship that's going to Italy. Hey, let's move all our stuff into that boat and we'll make it the rest of the way there from, from Myra, right, from, from, with that new ship. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving at Nidus. Why were they having difficulty? Next verse. When the wind did not allow us, it's almost like the wind has its own personality. The ocean, the sea, is some chaotic character in this story. To hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete opposite of Salmon. We'll talk about this in, with a map later on. So we moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lesia. Okay, let me summarize that on the map. Okay. 
So we're at Myra right now. His ultimate goal is to come over here to Italy. This is his goal, right? So what is the best way to get there? Usually, you would go right here through the islands because you're protected by the other islands around, and then you'll land here, and then you'll make your way here. That is how you're supposed to go. But because the winds were blowing against them, almost like some supernatural character trying to push against Paul's journey. Next slide. So from Myra, he moves along the coast to Nidus, right? And their plan is to, let's go over here. Our next stop is gonna be right here at Cythera. If we get here, then we're safe, right? But let's see what happens next. So from here, he goes down to Salmon instead because the wind starts blowing south. They're like, oh, well, we missed our goal. Uh, we ended up here, but that's okay. There's a port city here. We could hang out here. But things are not all that good because this is what happens next. <laughs> Much time has been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. What does that mean? Okay, every year, according to our calendar, the Day of Atonement is different. It's like... Christmas is always the same time of the year, 25th, right, December, but Easter is always a different time of the year. It's kind of like that, right? According to our calendar, um, the Day of Atonement is always different. People, scholars, believe that this actually took place in AD 59. AD 59, Day of Atonement was October 5th, okay? And this is important because of this. People who sailed the Mediterranean back then, around mid-September, so like about a month before, or two weeks before this, People start saying, okay, maybe we should stop sailing the seas because things are about to get dangerous. By mid-November, there's no ships out on the sea. So like, they're like, okay, we're in that danger zone where things are about to get really bad, and once the winter comes, nobody's out on the sea. So we, you know, like, should we gun it? Should we try to make it to our destination, or should we just stay here for the entire winter, like for a quarter of the year? Should we just stay here, or should we keep going, hoping that we make it there in time, right? So Paul overhears this. And he's like, uh, guys, I have an opinion. So Paul speaks up. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to shipping cargo, because that was the reason the ship was there in the first place, from, from Alexandria, and to our own lives also. Like, hey, you know the cargo that we have? Um, yeah, you know, you're doing this for money, and uh, you might lose your money if you keep going. Oh, and our lives might be in danger also. <laughs> great way to, like, Get that in there, right? And to them, these people, they're like, dude, why, why is Paul speaking out? He's a prisoner, number one, and he's also a Jew. Jews don't go into the ocean, except for Paul does, but the stereotype back then was that they don't. So, like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. So what do they do? The centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Back then, the owner of the ship usually was on the ship together with the pilot, and they made decisions together, and whatever they said, went, right? So that was their thing. So they're like, yeah, we're not going to listen to Paul, a Jew who doesn't know how to sail the sea. We're going to go according to what these people, people who own the boat, we're going to go according to what they want. It's like, okay, sounds good. So since the harbor was unsuitable for winter, uh, to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on hoping to reach Phoenix, which is a bird that doesn't die, right? That's the name of this, this port city they want to go to because that's a place of hope and winter there. This is a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. I'll show that in the map in a second. Next slide. When a gentle south wind began to blow, that means the wind started blowing from the south to the north, they saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Okay, let's put this on the map so you know what's going on. Okay, so remember, this is Phoenix. 
They're at Fair Havens right now. They want to stay close to the shore and come to Phoenix and hang out there for the entire winter. That's their plan, right? And so they're waiting and they're like putting their finger in their mouth like, no, no, oh, the wind's coming, the wind's coming, the wind's going this way, now's our chance to go, right? So they get on the ship, okay, and all of a sudden, when, okay, when they, they take off, the wind is still blowing some south to north, something happens. Next slide. Before very long, a wind hurricane force called a northeaster swept down from the island. So northeaster, so like from here, it's blowing wind this way, so the wind was blowing this way, like now's our chance to go, now the wind is blowing this way, and they're like, uh-oh. Not good. Oh, snap. Okay, next slide. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. Again, the wind is acting as a character in this story, right? So we gave way to it and were driven along. It's like, ah, what do we do? What do we do? It's like, I don't know. The wind is blowing against us. Let's just go with the wind. Next slide. As we passed to the lee of the small island called Kata, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. Like, any loose hanging things off the boat, let's pull it in, let's tie it down, because this is about to get really, really rough. Next slide. Then they passed rope under the ship itself to hold it together. I looked this up, like, how do they do this? Like, do you have like two guys jump into the water with ropes and they tie it together? I, I don't know. Maybe they do the jump rope thing where they put the rope in front of the boat and then the ship goes and they tie it up. I don't know. But whatever it is they did, all the commentaries I read said it is very difficult to do. <laughs> Obviously, right? Now, here's the thing about this. The ship is about to fall apart and they need rope to keep it together. I mean, this is the, the condition that, that Paul is in right now. Like, Paul's like, what, why am I doing this again? Like, what? Maybe I misheard God when he said that I'm supposed to do this, right? Next slide. Because they were afraid they would run aground on the, the sandbars of Syrtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. Like they were afraid that their ship was going to fall apart. So they're like, let's let the wave take us where we're supposed to go. We took such a violent battering. By the way, violent battering right here, the word here, is the same type of word that Luke used when they described Jesus being battered, batted down while he was being crucified. Um, so the, we took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. Remember, they were on this journey because the, the pilot, they, they wanted to do, they wanted to make money, right? And they're like, you know what's more important than stuff? Our lives, so they started tossing things overboard, hoping that it would make the ship a little lighter, that they would survive, you know, they have a better chance of survival. On the third day, hello, third day, um, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. They're like, yeah, we're desperate. Next slide. When neither sun nor star appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Now, why is it important that, that Luke mentions to us that they couldn't even see the sun or the stars? Because remember, on this boat, the only Jews on the boat who believed in Yahweh God were Paul, Luke, and the other people in the boat, the other Jews in the boat. But everybody else were Gentiles. Everybody else believed in the God and goddesses of the stars and the sun. And when they navigate the ocean, they always look to the star to see where they are. Now they can't see it. They are now separated from the thing that keeps them from getting lost. And they're like, we can't see the sun or the stars? Guys, I think this is it. Uh, our lives are over. Yeah, like this is it. Like, should we start saying our goodbyes now? Like, what, what do we do? Are we gonna be, like, we're getting hungry? Uh, are we gonna become carnivorous? Like, I don't know, what's gonna happen? So they're like, this is it. White flag, we're done. Like, the gods and goddesses of the ocean, whatever they believed in back then, they've got the best of us. 
So let's put this on the map. So the intended route was from here to here, right? Because the wind was starting to blow this way. And from here, they were planning on going to here. And from here, they were going to Italy. That was the original plan. But as soon as they took off, this is the island called Coda. Okay, next slide. The wind blew this way, and they kind of ended up here somewhere. And then they ended up in an island called Malta. And we'll get to that text in a second. If they miss this island, then there's nothing left. Like, this is it. For those of you who've been here, I have not been here, but for those of you who've been here, you probably know about this <laughs> more than I do. But the text tells us in the book of Acts that they were on the ship for 14 nights. They saw no sun and they saw no star and they were completely lost. They had no idea. By the way, the line that I drew here is completely random, right? Different commentators and map artists would draw lines differently than I would because we have no idea where they were. We just know where they started and we know where they ended and we know which way the wind was blowing. That was, yeah. And then right around the time when people were like, this is it guys, life's over. Um, it was nice knowing you guys. At that point, Paul stands up and he speaks to everybody and says, guys, don't give up hope. Last night, the angel of the Lord, the one that I worship, came to me and told me that I'm still gonna be at, I'm, I'm still gonna, I'm still destined to go to Italy. And what that means is that we're all gonna be saved. None of us is gonna die. Now, I think the ship is a goner, so you know, don't hold on to hope for the ship to stay together, but we're all gonna make it. God told me so. And then the next day, they, pull, they throw this rope over with a weight at the end to measure how deep the water is, and they're like, oh, whoa, that's 120 feet. That's, that's not that deep. And a few hours later, they did it again. It's like, oh, that's 90 feet. Oh my goodness, we're actually close to shore. They're like, everybody, let's pull the brakes. So they throw four anchors over, right? And they stop the boat, and they still can't see, so they're like, let's just spend the night here in the boat tonight and pray that tomorrow morning the mist will go away and that we'll see exactly where we are. And sure enough, when the mist cleared the next morning, they realized that they were right at the shore of this island called Malta. Now, by the way, I'll talk about this more next week, but if you go to the island Malta today, there's actually a bay called the, it's called the St. Paul's Bay because that's where he landed. And, and the reason they know that is because they found the weights that they were talking about here in this story. Like, they went to the water, like, there it is, there it is. Oh, yeah, yeah. Anyways, okay, I got too excited about that. Okay, now, at this point in the story, because this is where we're going to stop reading the text, because <clears throat> this is all we're going to, I promise you up to verse 20, right? Okay, at this point in the story, you have to imagine what it felt like to be Paul. Like, it's easy to be a third person in the story and listen to stories about Paul, but imagine if you were the first person, like you were, the, you were Paul, or you were one of the crewmates, or you were Luke writing everything down, and you realize we're running out of food, we have no idea where we are, for all I know, we could be past this last island, we might be in the middle of nowhere. Why are we doing this again? You know, we were comfortably living in a prison cell, like it was a governor's palace, so it was a nice prison, I guess. Like, we were fine over there. And we're doing this because God called us to do what? Like, what, I, I, what, what is my motivation, right? Like, there is, like, I don't know if you guys made New Year's resolutions, but you have a motivation somewhere, right? Like, okay, this year I'm gonna be a better person. And what keeps you going? And for most of us, it doesn't keep us going, so the motivation wasn't good enough, right? But what was the motivation for Paul? Why does he put himself in this situation? Is it okay? The question is, have you ever felt like giving up on God's calling? Is it okay to give up on God's calling? What if the motivation's gone? I mean, in this situation, Paul could literally say, I feel like the whole world is against me, <laughs> right? Whatever I'm trying to accomplish, it is super hard. How did Paul hang on 
to his calling? How did he hang on to his faith? Like, and maybe you're in that same boat, figuratively and maybe literally, I don't know, right? Where you're like, God has called me to love on these people and it is hard. God has called me to tear down these walls between these groups of people and that group of people or my people and their people. God has called me to build a bridge. And every time I feel like when I, when I take one step forward, I feel like the world is pushing me back five, 10, 20 steps. Like, is it even worth doing this? Maybe it's a family member. And you're like, I've been trying so hard to love on my family member. But every time I try to do it, I feel like this big pushback from the world that I just can't keep doing this. Maybe, is it okay to give up on this calling? What was my motivation again, right? And you see, here's the thing, for a lot of us, I would say most of us, the motivation we have is progress, right? I'm gonna, there's my goal, and I made a step in the right direction, and you look at the bigger picture, and you're like, hey, I was there a few years ago, I'm here now, my goal's over there, I think I'm on the right track, and that's your motivation. If you're trying to lose weight, you're like, hey, look, I lost five pounds, cool, you know, like 30 more to go, right? So, right? Progress becomes your motivation. But what if you have nothing to show for it? Like, what will I have to show for it? Like, what if there is no progress? What if the progress is actually a regression, right? Like, I've been trying to do this, but I feel like I'm actually a few steps behind than where I start. Like, if I stop doing this, will anybody notice? Right? Because if my motivation is progress and there is no progress, then I have no motivation. And what about Paul? Well, you might be thinking, well, it's different for Paul because, you know, Paul is in the Bible and Bible characters are, like, better than us. So, like, they have better and, like, better motivations than we do. Well, what was Paul's motivation? Well, his motivation was to look to Jesus, right? Because Jesus and Paul were only just a few decades separated, so he could always call back to, like, oh, remember what Jesus did in those days, right? It's not like he had a Bible back then. Like, Bible wasn't published, uh, wasn't available to anybody for a few hundred more years, right? So it's like, oh, yeah, I remember those stories. Like, is that what Paul did, just remember the story of Jesus? Well, what Luke is trying to tell us here is this. Here, here's a map of Jesus' journey. Sea of Galilee, he was headed towards Jerusalem, which is right here. Every step he took towards Jerusalem, the more and more pushback he felt, right? Every step, the last week of his life, one step towards Jerusalem meant another group of people who were against him. And when he entered into Jerusalem, there was pushback from his fellow Jews. There was pushback from the Romans. Part of his journey, he had pushback from pigs. Like, it was kind of weird, right? He had pushback from the demons. He had pushback from kings. He had pushback from governors. He, he had pushback from the devil. I mean, like, right? He felt like the whole world was against him. But you're like, yeah, but you see, if I was Jesus, which you should never say, but if I was Jesus, right, knowing what my mission is, like what I'm about to accomplish, it'd be worth doing it. Like if you're Jesus and you're like, yeah, I don't know if I want to do this, Father. I think I'm done with this mission. Like all he needs is this thing like, hey, Jesus, remember where you're calling? It's, it's to, next slide. It's for the salvation of the world. Like you just go with, through with this and Jesus, you're going to save the whole world. So it's worth it, right? Jesus is like, yeah, you're right, it's worth it. Right? Like, his motivation was huge. I mean, of course, he would sacrifice himself. Like, that's what we would think. Like, if, if me dying means the whole world has a second chance, then I, yeah, I'm definitely gonna do it, right? But what about Paul and Paul's journey? Well, let's see the pushback he received. He received pushback in Samaria when he was there. He got pushed back in Cyprus. He got pushed back in Ephesus. He got pushed back in Jerusalem. He got pushed back from his ex-colleagues, like these people who used to call friends, these religious rulers, are now against him, trying to get him killed, right? And then 
this is a bragging point, I think, when you say, I got pushed back from the dark forces of the sea, right? Like, it's like, how was your day? You know, dark forces of the sea was attacking me. Like, oh, okay, my day was fine. Yours was bad. You know? So Paul, what was your motivation go th- of going through with this? I mean, Jesus was saving the world. What are you trying to do? Because Paul can't save the world. He's not God. What is your motivation, Paul? And you would say, well, my goal is inclusivity and unity. Okay, so that's, that's your motivation, Paul. Okay, so how did you do on that? And he thinks about it, and he's like, mm, let's see, there was that, no, no. Um, well, I did get a lot of people from the outside to agree with me to join the people on the inside, but the people on the inside didn't want the outsiders to come in, so that didn't work out. Hmm, you're right. Have you ever considered this, that Paul was actually a failure? Have you ever thought about this? That like, if his motivation was his progress, then he must have had no motivation at all because Paul never saw the benefits of his sacrifices. He laid his life down to bring unity and inclusivity into the churches, into the Jewish group that he was trying to change, and he saw none of it in his lifetime. Zero, like, that was, was that, like, did Paul, when he died, because he dies in a few, few chapters, or not in the book of Acts, but in, historically we know that in a few years after this, Paul is executed. When he died, was he feeling like, man, did I just waste my life? Could I have had a better life than this? Was it worth all the sacrifices that I've, right? I saw no fruit from what I did. And I ask again, is it okay to give up on God's calling in your life? But see, lucky for us, that's not how Paul thought. This is not the way. His motivation was not progress in his mission. Because when Paul thought, man, I'm never going to see the benefits of my sacrifice, we also discover this, because he is actually in good company. What do I mean by that? In the New Testament, there's another book later on called the Book of Hebrews, which was written by we don't know. <laughs> Traditionally, people think that Paul wrote it, but if you look, read through the whole book, you realize the style doesn't really match Paul's style, so it probably wasn't Paul. Some, there's some scholars who think that it was actually a woman who wrote it, which would be awesome, right? We don't know who wrote it he or she or who, we don't know. Whoever wrote it didn't want anybody to know, but we know the person who wrote it was a Jew. That's all we know about. That's why we call it the book of Hebrews. Okay, but in the 10th, uh, in the 11th chapter, this author says this. It's like, in case you don't know what faith is, let me explain to you. Faith, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what ancients were commended for. What does he mean by this? Or she, we don't know, right? What does this person mean by this? Well, we're not sure just by reading this sentence. So he starts giving us example after example in, the, in chapter 11. Like the example of Noah. He said, Noah, when he was building a ship, God's like, I want you to build a ship, Noah. Noah was building something without knowing that there's a flood coming around the corner. He doesn't know. He's just like, I'm just going to build this because I was told to do it, right? He was doing something without seeing any progress. I mean, he saw progress in a ship, but he doesn't know he, what he was doing it for. Right? He gives an example of, of, of Abraham. God calls him out of a place called Ur of the Chaldeas, and he said, Abraham, I want you to leave your town and get out of here because I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Just between me and my wife, Sarah, really? We're going we're gonna to start a nation? It's like, yes, you're going to have numerous descendants. <laughs> and then at the end of his life, he has one legitimate child, and that was it. He never got to see the nation that God promised him. If his motivation was based on progress, he would have been like, we're starting a nation, family, and we have one kid. 
not a good one either, you know, right? Like, I don't know if he's going to carry on my family business, that kind of thing, right? Um, and he gives other examples, like Moses' parents. I don't know if you guys know, but Moses' parents, who we don't know much about, made the list, made the cut of, in chapter 11 of Hebrews. says, when they hid Moses, because the Egyptians were trying to kill all the newborn boy uh, male babies, they hid the baby not knowing what was going to happen, right? Like, we just think this is what God wants us to do, is hide this baby. And when they couldn't hide it anymore, after three months, they're like, uh, let's put him in a basket and put him down the river and see what happens. Did you notice that Moses' parents, who disappears from the story early on, they never find out what Moses turns into? Have you considered that? Like, their little act of faith if their motivation was progress, they'll be like, I don't know where our son went. Uh, I just know that we put him in a basket and went down the Nile River. And uh, my daughter did tell me that he got adopted by the Pharaoh, but that's all I know, right? And we don't know what happened to him after that. Their motivation was not based on progress. They don't know that Moses becomes the guy that comes into Egypt and brings the 10 plagues and pulls all the slaves out and brings them into freedom. They don't know that. Right? Like, it's really interesting the list that comes out of chapter 11. <laughs> like, basically, they start listing failure after failure. Like, if these people, their definition of success was based off of progress within their lifetime, they all failed. But the author here says, these are actually the heroes of our, of our stories. These people don't know what happened to what the outcome was, right? And then we go into chapter 12, and this is what this author says. Therefore, because of the examples I just listed, since we are surrounded by such great clouds of witnesses, he says, if you are doing something without seeing any progress in your life, like I've been loving my kids, hoping that they would, turn, they would change, because right now they're jerks, and I want to make sure they turn into good people. And in my lifetime, the love I'm pouring out to them, the way that I'm caring for them, I don't see any progress. He says, you are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. The examples of the people I just listed in the previous chapter, these people who didn't see progress in their lives, in their lifetime, they put faith in God and said, God, I'm offering my love and my generosity and my sacrifice to these people without seeing any progress, but I'm counting on you to do something with that. I might not see it in my lifetime, but I know you know what's gonna happen. I'm not seeing the fruits of my labor, but that's not why I'm doing this. It's because I trust you with the fruits of my labor, right? He's like, so you're surrounded by a great crowd of witnesses, so let us throw off everything. Oh, back. Let us throw off everything in this slide. Okay, that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. There's a lot of things in our lives that's pulling us back from trusting God with our good works. And he says, don't let that hinder you. Don't let that entangle you. Next slide. And let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Why do we fix our eyes on Jesus? Because he's the pioneer and perfecter of faith. I didn't consider this until I read this. Did you know when Jesus died on, died on the cross, he didn't see the benefit of his labor. Like, like when he was dying on the cross, the last thing he saw is, I'm dying for the sins of this universe. And I see two people fighting over my clothes. Great, is this really gonna work, Father? <laughs> right? Like Jesus, if his life ended right there on the cross, he would have been like, I'm a failure. But Jesus is God. He sees all things, right? So he knew what was gonna happen afterwards. We don't have that foresight. We don't, right? But Jesus does. He's hanging on the cross, doing it willfully because he knows that this is gonna lead to something good. We don't have that foresight, but Jesus does, right? And this is why in the next verse, the author says this, for the joy set before him, 
He knew that this was gonna turn out to be something great. Right, like Jesus is dying on the cross and he's like, this is great. All my, my, my disciples have scattered and there's people fighting over my clothes. Really? <laughs> right? And there's a guy that's about to stab me with a spear. Like, oh great, <laughs> like I, I'm not dead enough. Like, thanks, right? Like, but he endured the cross because he saw the joy that was ahead of him. He knew that it was gonna add up to something, scorning its shame, like, like I'm gonna take on the shame because I know what good is gonna come out of it, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Eventually, he was lifted up and he was considered to be the greatest that ever was. Next slide. Consider him, consider Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Don't lose heart. The work, the good work that you're doing right now, that God has called you to do, is not, it's, you might not see the benefits of it now, but God's gonna use it in ways that we could never imagine. And it might happen after you die, but he's like, don't give up. In other words, what he's trying to say here is this. You will never know the full extent of your living sacrifice. Living sacrifice is a term that Paul used to talk about how when we live our lives selflessly, when we live our lives with other people when we place other people as more important, that we're pouring our lives and our resources towards them. When we live like that, we're a living sacrifice. You will never know the full extent of your living sacrifice. Literally, you will never know. But Jesus knows, so don't give up. Paul is on the ship and he's wondering, why am I doing this again? What's my motivation? Looking at my track record, all I've like done is cause riots wherever I went because there's so many people who are against what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to bring outsiders in and they don't, people on the inside don't want them in. So everywhere I go, I feel like I'm failing. But Paul is reminded that there's a great cloud of witnesses who's saying, we didn't know either when we were alive, but now in hindsight, we realize how God used that for something amazing. So Paul, don't give up. Every act of love that you show will never go to waste because it's building towards something that we have no idea what it is, but it's building towards something that's really good. We're building towards heaven on earth. Scholar N.T. Wright that I talked about earlier, we quoted him earlier, the way he puts it is this. It's like, it's like a person who's building bricks and he used this example because he's from England and there's like huge cathedrals there. He's like, he's like, I was there for the building one of these cathedrals. He said that people would be building these bricks and decorating and designing it perfectly as they were instructed without knowing where in this cathedral this brick is gonna end up. But one day, these workers will walk in, these artisans will walk into the cathedral and look at how big and beautiful, majestic these cathedrals are, and they look around and say, whoa, there's my brick, right? <laughs> like, they had no idea where this would be placed, whether if it's in the corner where no one's gonna see it or if it's gonna be the centerpiece of the whole thing. They have no idea, right? But all they know is that their brick is playing a huge part in upholding this majestic building. In the same way, when you do something good, when you forgive somebody that's unforgivable, when you break down walls and you feel like, I don't know, that was, I feel like I didn't really put a dent in the whole movement towards you know, equality or whatever, right? But I did my part. You never know how God is gonna use that and place it in this, the, this huge vision of heaven that God has for us in the future. So don't give up. And, I, and I'll be the first to admit to you, and I was talking to my, my, to my wife about this uh, last night, about like, well, what about you, Kotz? Do you have stories about moments where you felt like you put your whole heart into it and nothing came of it, 
right? And I'm like, yeah, a lot of times. If you're a pastor, you know every time you preach a sermon and everyone's yawning, you're like, oh yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, yeah, that was a failure. Like sometimes, like, I mean, poor Val, like I'm driving home from church and I'm like, man, that message sucked, right? And she's like, no, it was good, it was good. And I'm like, people were falling asleep, Val, and man, I think I should change my job, right? And, and she'll be like, no, you never know how God's gonna use it. And I'm like, yeah, you should be preaching, not me, right? <laughs> right? I'm such a hypocrite because uh, I, I don't follow my own advice sometimes, right? Or, you know, before I did, did um, pastoring here, I was working with youth in a church in Northern California, and I poured my soul into them, you know, and I taught them as much as I could. And, you know, in hindsight, I realized that sometimes I didn't teach the right things because, you know, I thought I knew everything back then, but I didn't. You know, now I know better that I shouldn't have said those things. But, you know, like, I did my best, right? I poured into them and I cared for them. And I look back to see how they're doing and some of them don't go to church anymore. Some of them, like, went off the rails and did their own thing. And some of them uh, actually passed away because of some poor choices. You know, I'm like, like, did I do that for nothing? You know, like, was that, like, Where's my motivation? Should I stop ministering to people? <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting because there are times when people, like some of you will come up to me and say, hey, you know that sermon from last week? That really changed my perspective. And I'm, you know, I'm like, really, that bad sermon changed your, okay, sure, right? You never know how it's gonna change. Like, we have, I have like one of the youth that I mentored years ago who came up to me and said, hey, Kotz, I'm gonna be a pastor. And I'm like, you are? Like, <laughs> you know, okay, like there's times where like there are people in, in the, not this congregation, but you know, when I preached and, and some of you, like there's people who are like just doing this the whole time. And I'm like, oh, that person's not listening to a word I'm saying, right? And there's somebody over here that's like, just like nodding the whole time. Like, okay, I'm gonna preach to this person because this person is listening. And then later on, I find out the person who was like nodding was just like, just like in tears inside, but they didn't want to show it. So, you know, like they were actually listening and the person was nodding. It turns out like, I don't know if you met people like this, but they, when they walk, they're always like, hey, how's it going, everybody, right? And I'm like, oh, that's just a default for them. Okay, I'm just getting carried away now. Okay, the point is this, okay? You never know the effect that you're having on the kingdom of God. You just don't know, right? So don't give up, amen? Amen, let's pray.